Welcome to the Kindness Podcast. I'm Nicole Phillips. Dr. Tara Cousineau went from being bullied in the schoolyard to being an agent for kindness. Her work as a clinical psychologist has led her to research the effects of kindness both to oneself and to others. Her book, The Kindness Cure, explores how the science of compassion can heal hearts and the world. Tara, I'd like to go back to your youth. Like many of us, there was a moment of unkindness that has lived with you for decades. Can you describe what happened? Oh, yeah, that's really easy for me, actually. I was five years old, and I was on the playground, so this is kindergarten, and this little boy named Alex started jeering at me, you're a Nazi, you're a Nazi, your mom's a Nazi. And I had no idea what he was saying to me. I had never heard the word. I, I, I couldn't spell. I couldn't even fathom it. I was like, Nazi? Snazi? You're like a knot mm-hmm. on a shoelace? Like, I really didn't know. But it was sort of his um, intention, right, to be a bully, to um, sort of bring me down. And I just remember sort of standing there frozen, like, why is he doing this? And then I asked my mom when I got home, like, what does that mean? What's what's Nazi mean? And my mother is German, and she just sort of dismissed it. She said, oh, don't listen to those boys. They don't know what they're talking about, and never really answered my question. But that sort of hovered over me for a long time. Um, this is also the kid that threw the ice balls in the, in the school bus, and you know, mm-hmm. he was just a bad news kid. Um, but I remember really feeling like um, – it was like the first time that somebody in the outside world had actually been mean because I just hadn't had that experience before. I mean, I guess, you know, kindergarten is often sort of the, the initiation of yeah. social life, right? You know, but I just remember being called something. I knew it was bad and I felt shame even though I didn't know why. And then um, and that later unfolded as I, as I came to understood more about Germany, where my mother was from, what the history was, and and then it sort of um, melded into a whole different meaning for me. So, um, but that was the first time, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, probably a typical childhood experience, but yeah, that was the first. Well, and it's interesting because we all have them in some way, shape, or form, I think. But but it seems like you've kind of maybe parlayed that into 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 a, something that shaped the rest of your life. You're a clinical psychologist. You're a researcher on well-being. How do you think that that touch point moment shaped who you are today? I think it almost has everything to do. I think it was the seed or the trigger for me to really question the human capacity for cruelty and kindness. And, um, you know, as I as I got older and I was around the age of 11 and 12 and I had seen a PBS documentary on the German Holocaust, I really went into sort of my own personal shock. And, um, and then I think I probably tormented my poor mother through my entire adolescence about why did this happen? How could this happen? Why couldn't you do anything about it? What did you know? And I was sort of relentless about it in a very unfair, unkind way, but I really had a lot of questions about it. My mother was and is the kindest person I know. And I think in a lot of ways she came over when she was 19 years old and um, I think overcompensated mm-hmm. on the compassion side of things. So we were constantly giving away things. And um, 
our toys, hand-me-downs, things that we didn't need because other people would need them. And my mother was um, probably almost obsessive about it. And I only came to realize later that I feel like she was in her own way trying to do some sort of mini reparation, if you will. Mm -hmm. So it really did, um, it really did shape my outlook and um, also the paradox, I would say, of living in this world uh, in a human body with other human beings who are really capable of the most horrific things and yet the most wonderful loving things at the same time. Do you feel like there's more good in the world or more bad in the world? Or is it even? I don't even know if you could quantify it. I think it really comes down to what we pay attention to. I think that my optimistic side would say that there's much more good in the world and that by our nature, we are wired to care. And the only way that our species can survive is through cooperation, generosity, kindness, forgiveness, all those sorts of things. But the interference comes with how our culture portrays things. And right now, or not right now, but I think certain technologies really amplify certain things. And technology, or, you know, the old technology, which was, you know, books and radio, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, you know, they're just, they're neutral, right? Um, They're they're messengers for, um, for us. And so I think we're not quite at this tipping point yet where we know how to manage a lot of that. So what we see and what we're exposed to feels really awful and it's fueling um, sort of a a sense of fear and anxiety and constant stress. And so our attention is directed sometimes purposely towards the bad things that happen. And so we really have to override that by practicing in a daily way basis, um, appreciating the good, looking for the good and creating it. Because I really think that that's what's more prevalent. It just doesn't get our attention. And you focus on the word kindfulness. What does, does that have to do with what you're talking about with that? What does that word mean in that context? Well, when I wrote the, when I wrote the book, um, The Kindness Cure, I was really trying to, um, create or cultivate a new language around kindness Mm -hmm. because in a lot of ways kindness gets relegated to this hallmark sensibility or people are suspect of people who are kind um that's true they are yeah it's true you know i mean if you think of like harry potter you know dolores umbridge right she was sort of overly sugarly saccharine sweet and yet she was one of the cruelest teachers they Uh had and you know we're sort of um you know enculturated into this idea that um you know kindness is not authentic and it's not true and it's not real and so I think using the words kind sight and kindfulness was my way or is my way of um talking about certain ways that we could practice elevating kindness to the sort of orientation to life that it deserves and that's required and that's actually hardwired into us. So that's why I, and I was really also merging this, like, um, we've got, um, actually a great movement going on around 
mindfulness. Um, so, you know, it's almost become a, a common day term in a lot of areas, which is good. And um, so in my field, especially, there's a lot of mindfulness interventions and you see mindfulness in school and mindfulness in the workplace and, and mindfulness at the gym. It's, it's everywhere. Well, that's all well and good because it's really about cultivating a way to be in the present moment without judgment, letting the moments unfold in a way that's natural. But there's less of an emphasis on, I think, the true meaning of mindfulness, which is really being able to rest in loving awareness and um, having that sort of quality of presence that is kind and loving to yourself and to other people. So kindfulness is actually not a a new word. Um, there are some Buddhist monks that use the term, and I've actually come across some preschool teachers that have used the word kindness. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, I love this. It's kind of like popping up in different places. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I just hope to be sort of an amplifier of that is how can we cultivate kindness? And that's really bringing attention to what's in front of us in a kind way, in a loving way, instead of being reactive or impulsive or mindless and not being really kind of rooted in um, in centeredness. So that's where that comes from. So when a person is learning this process of mindfulness or kindfulness, you're going to have people that, that bump into you that just absolutely uh, make you angry. Your first impulse is anger. And whether that is, you know, somebody cuts you off in traffic or lets a door slam in your face or whatever it is, if our natural first instinct as humans is to get angry at that, is it possible to rewire our brain so that's not our first instinct anymore? Um, yes, it is. You but sound hesitant. <laughs> well, because I don't want to say, oh, yeah, it's really easy. We can override our natural instinct. I mean, we have instincts. It's, it's wired into us, and it's wired in there for a purpose. So if we think about um, – we, we have a very sensitive emotional radar in our bodies. We just don't use them in a way that's sometimes most helpful for us. So if we have that reaction to the guy that cut us off in traffic or the angry parent at the PTO meeting, we are viscerally going to have a first reaction. It's very natural. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's actually giving us information. The opportunity is, is to be able to take in that information, to be able to pause, to be able to, for a split second even, tune in and say, oh, oh, I'm having a reaction. It's anger, it's frustration, it's irritation, whatever it is. And then be able to say, okay, how do I step back from this and either see it in multiple ways, be able to just take some deep breaths and not react because you're practicing Mm -hmm. (laughs) non-reactivity. Or ask yourself a question, which I often do, which is, how do I bring kindness to this moment? Mm, Great question. It is a great question. And I'm telling you, it's really helpful when you're around family members, um, because we have this sort of, um, um, I don't know, tendency to be reactive to the people we love the most because we feel the safest in their presence, right? So right. it's kind of easy to snap. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've got teenage girls, so I practice this all the time, actually. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, I really all step back and I'll say, um, how do I bring love and awareness to this moment? Uh, how do I bring kindness to this moment? And it's, it's helpful because if I can step back from it, I can say, oh, she's 
she's really stressed out. She's applying for college. It's a really hard thing to do when you're 17 years old. She thinks that I should have all the answers, and I don't. So if I can step back and say she's reacting, but I don't necessarily need to react to her reaction, even if it's about me. I can just take a pause, walk away, come back, and sort of re-engage in a conversation. This is something we can do with our bosses or our coworkers too, and it really is a practice. So to get back to your first question, can we override our tendency to um, to react or overreact? The answer is yes, but it's with a certain kind of practice. And, um, and a lot of it comes down to being able to take that pause. Okay, so if it's a muscle, sort of, that we can kind of develop, we can learn to be kinder, the first takeaway point is to pause. Is there a second one? Is there something that we do after that that we have to, you know, lay in bed at night and think about the times we were kind or weren't kind? Or or what do you think comes next? Well, I think that there are lots of things. I think um, if you're reacting to somebody in the moment, um, and the first thing is that oh, you know, you're actually tuning in, you're saying, oh, I'm really angry right now, um, you can pause, right? You can give yourself a, a count of 10. And then consider whether you are going to answer that question or react to it, walk away, shelve it, come back to it a different time. You've got choices. Like That's the whole thing. Like A breath really allows you to make um, a choice. Hopefully, you have enough time to make an informed choice. We often don't. So yes, you take a pause, you take a breath, you think about what's happening, you re-enter the situation from a place of really good intention, right? You might not agree with that person, you might have completely different beliefs than that person, but to be able to say to yourself, okay, there are two of us here, we have different points of view, Um, how can I respond to this in a way that's not blaming, shaming, or reactive? And that takes practice. Um, I say that we have opportunities about 100 times a day to practice this. And so the more you do that, what happens is that you are actually practicing a certain kind of mental training. And um, and it's about redirecting your attention and redirecting your focus. So this is where mindfulness or kindfulness, you know, with the loving awareness really, really can become helpful. Then there's all these other ways um, I believe that you actually speak about this or write about this in your column in your book, and that is practicing um, appreciation. So if something awful happens or um, you've been really disappointed, you've been let down, there's some sort of, um, I don't know, loss or failure, let's say, oftentimes it's really not about what you're doing outward or externally. It's really about how you're treating yourself in the moment. And so having sort of a kind orientation to other people is a very important practice, but it's equally important, if not more so, to practice that towards yourself. Mm, Wow. Do you feel like you can't take that step necessarily of being especially kind to others if you are really upset with yourself or, or can people compartmentalize and work on them separately? Well, I think all of the above, to be honest with you, uh-huh. because so much is based on context. Um, so, you know, let's let's just take an example of, um, you know, um, well, actually, the ones that are very relevant right now. So, you know, um, a young person's applying for college, they don't get into their top choice, mm-hmm. right? And it could be really devastating because they've sort of wrapped their entire identity and the way they've envisioned their future around that. And, and, and so it's really disappointing. And, you know, those are the points to say and learn to cultivate self-compassion. Like, you know what, right now in this moment, this is really sad and frustrating, 
but I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm pretty much okay. I'm going to get through this. Um, there are, there are other avenues and, and it's a little bit of self-talk, but it's a little bit of trying to actually care for yourself as if you would your best friend, let's say, mm. or as if you would your beloved pet even, right? Sometimes we actually need to, we're so loving towards our pets, you know, but we're, mm-hmm. we're loving towards the people around us, but we're more loving to our dogs and our cats. Well, you know what? You apply that same tenderness and that same care um, towards yourself in that moment. And so, and that can take time. You know, it can take, because you're going to, I always said we're kind of, um, when we're moving in this in this space for kindfulness or loving intention, it's kind of like a spiral, an upward spiral, is that you're going to keep kind of coming around the bend to something that's difficult or something that's hard, something that's unexpected. But the more you practice this, the easier it is to kind of know what to do the next time. And so that you're kind of just keep evolving upward and forward, mm-hmm. um, you know, because we, we have setbacks all the time. As long as we keep evolving, I think we're moving in the right direction, though, right? Just keep right. I keep saying sometimes I wish I look at the newspapers. I'm like, oh, can't we evolve humanity? (laughs) (laughs) But I believe people have been saying that for decades and decades and decades. What have you found most fascinating about the study of kindness? I think what has been really a change maker, if you will, is is some of the studies that are coming out of the field of neuroscience. And in particular, there are some researchers in Germany at the Max Planck Institute there, Tanya Singer and her colleagues, who are um, mapping the brain in a way. And one of the things, an, an, an earlier study that they showed in terms of looking at brain imaging is that um, what happens in the brain is so interesting around empathy and compassion. So let me let me step back and just define a couple of things. Mm-hmm. So so empathy is really our ability to resonate with another person's feelings. We can put ourselves in their shoes. We can we can kind of understand what they're they're going through. Often when we're feeling empathic towards somebody, we can get hijacked by our own emotions. It's why we turn away from the homeless. It's why we shut off the TV when we see devastating, horrific things is that um, we feel so much because we can imagine ourselves in in somebody else's shoes that it's so painful and upsetting that we either numb out, you know, we tune out or um, we just walk away. So, so, so empathy kind of starts off as this empathic response, which could kind of place you either into a distressing situation, you know, it's a distressing mm-hmm. personal experience, um, or it can actually open you up to feel motivated to care, right? And then we move into the state of compassion, which is specifically around resonating with another person's suffering, but not getting lost in the suffering. Right. Mm, so yeah. it's a slightly different thing. And so what the neuroscientists are finding this, I just love this, is that the brain's empathy map is actually very similar to how we experience physical pain. Hmm. And that's interesting to me because I think a lot of people get stuck in that place of pain. If you think of like recently, I just saw the HBO documentary Cry for Syria. I cried the entire time. It was so upsetting to me. Mm-hmm. And I was in this place of empathic distress. I didn't even really know what to do. The problem seemed so, so enormous. And um, and a lot of us go in, into that 
state of mind, school shootings, you know, you start listing the whole thing. And we are kind of in that place where our brain is reacting, resonating, feeling, feeling sort of, um, you know, for what's going going on. And it's it's hard. Compassion is actually an uplifting experience. And so what the scientists are finding is that compassion actually maps in a sort of another part of the brain that slightly overlaps with empathy, but actually moves us into activating areas of the brain in our prefrontal cortex, the the parts of our brain that allow us to take perspective, to see a situation from almost an observer um, place so that we actually have enough distance that we can decide how we want to act. So that's when you kind of move from empathic distress to more of a motivational empathy to compassion. And then we can actually make choices. So for instance, with the example of watching the film Cry for Syria, I can decide, oh, I got to donate to a cause. Like this is going to be it. My, you know, 2017 tax write-off mm-hmm. is going to be, you know, contributing to that organization mm-hmm. or calling the Boston Refugee Crisis Center and seeing how I can actually help. Do they need a counselor, you know? Mm-hmm. So it allows me to all of a sudden have something to do or to consider doing in a way that I don't feel paralyzed. Yeah. And I always think it's fascinating that not everyone's heart aches for the same thing. We can be uh, full of empathy and full of compassion and and something that that triggers you is going to be different Mm -hmm. than triggers someone else. And that's beautiful because then so many places get help. So many needs get filled when when people are willing to, you know, to follow that compassion kind of trigger and for what yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it also needs to be cultivated because also some people don't have those experiences in general. Um, and it might be because they're really kind of in um, survival mode. So I'm, I'm a psychotherapist. I see a lot of clients. They've had a lot of trauma in their background and they're kind and caring people. But if they're in a state that their basic needs aren't being met or they're not feeling safe, mm. it's really hard to extend a helping hand um, in that, you know, in that state of mind. And so that's actually really where cultivating self-compassion is a really important first step is really caring for yourself first so that someday you'll be able to kind of be the person that you want to be, to be connected to other kinds of things. So I think that we can't rule out the importance of um, really applying skills to cultivating kindness um, to, to ourselves because people are just at different places in their trajectory. Mm-hmm. Tara, before I let you go, do you have a favorite personal kindness story that you'd like to share with us? About um, something that happened to me? Yeah, just something that really kind of maybe shifted your perspective about the goodness of humanity. Yeah, I do. I think this is more of a story of something that I did or I yeah. didn't know what the, or I didn't know what the ripple effect was going to be. Yeah, I love those stories. Yeah, so um when I was about um 24, 25 years old, I became very um active in the AIDS HIV movement. And so I was a I volunteered for the AIDS Action Committee in Boston and and I was a buddy to um, a person who had HIV AIDS. And so we would basically get assigned as as sort of being helpers in a way or just a, a resource. So I had a, I had a couple of people um, 
over over the years, they all passed away. But um, the last person that I worked with was a mother. She had three kids um, uh, and sort of, you know, different parents. And um, the oldest daughter was this raging 15-year-old girl who was so angry at her mother who had abused drugs. And she kind of got the brunt of having to deal with really kind of raising her younger brother and sister, her half siblings. And she was angry and she really actually had every reason to be angry, but she scared the heck out of me. Yeah, I would be, I'd come into this home and I'd be like, oh my God, you know, like I would have that sort of first um, visceral reaction. Yeah, <laughs> right. Get. But anyways, what happened was to make the story a little bit shorter is that I ended up finding the family. Um, the mother passed away. I stayed in touch with this older teenager, um, me and my now husband um, supported her in a number of ways. And one of the ways was, is I invited her to come to yoga with me. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I just got to, I got to try everything with this kid. Like, you know, she's had such a bad start in life. And so I would do the quirky things. And so I would take her to a yoga class and she came for, a, and we actually even gave her sort of a room in our apartment for about six months as she was getting on her feet. She was about 19 years old at that point. And then I lost, I lost track for years. And about 15 years later, like I'm in my 30s now at this point, I'm raising my own kids. I get a text message from her on a Saturday morning around 10 o'clock. And it says, Tara, I'm letting you know I'm about to lead my first yoga class and I'm dedicating it to you. Oh, oh. I couldn't believe it. It makes me, it tears me up right now. Like I had no idea that she had taken to yoga, that it ended up really saving her life in so many ways, and that she became a yoga teacher, and in particular for young adolescent girls. And I, I, it was such a shock, it was such a shock to me. And I thought, okay, this is why we stretch ourselves. This is why we do whatever it is that we can, because we never know what the outcome can be for somebody's life. And as you like to say, being kind does matter. It does. (laughs) Wow. Tara, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. And um, I think that everyone should run out and grab your book, The Kindness Cure, How the Science of Compassion Can Heal Your Heart and Your World. Thanks, Tara. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Dr. Tara Cousineau. Interested in learning more about the kindness cure and discovering your kindness quotient? Head to tarakuzino.com. Thanks for listening to The Kindness Podcast. It's produced by WOUB Public Media and relies heavily on the kindness of engineer Adam Rich and intern Madeline Peck. I'm Nicole Phillips. We hope you'll subscribe to The Kindness Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or the NPR One app and find us on social media at Kindness Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to spread some kindness in the review section. 